0: All right, we're going to jump into just a little teaching and then have Steve come again. Um, But um, let's look at, I I, I really want to look at the life of David uh, as a leader who gives us a great example. He is, uh, you know, one of the reasons I think why King David was such a great leader is because he really understood the importance of leading himself. You think about just the nature of his calling and then, you know, how he was, a shepherd and how Saul was hunting him half the time and uh, you know he really had a, a different uh, unique story than a lot of people and sometimes he was isolated sometimes he was on his own um, and you know he didn't necessarily always have all the best people around him encouraging him in his leadership in 1st Samuel chapter 30 David is just starting to learn to lead his troops he's beginning to lead his troops into battle Saul is still, Saul is the king, and David's been running now for quite a while from Saul, and God has been pouring his favor out on David, and most of the time, David wins the battles that he's engaging in, and um, one time, though, that that pattern kind of changed, and after fighting another enemy, David and his men, they come back to their home base, and uh, the city of Ziklag, and they are there, and they discover that the Amalekites had attacked, and they had destroyed their campsite. And uh, not only did they come and destroy their campsite, but then they dragged their wives and their children and their uh, babies off and all of their belongings. They just ravaged their camp and took their loved ones. And, and <laughs> you know, I, I, I always like to try to put myself in the shoes of different people in the Bible, and I'm just thinking, oh, my gosh. This is like a terrible day for any leader, uh, you know, to have an event like this happen. Um, but that's not really where it ends. David's soldiers are very tired. Obviously, they've been at battle. And, and they are angry. And they're hurt. And they're very worried about their families. And they feel all the effects of, you know, being this soldier in that moment. And they're distraught. And in their, in their anguish, there's this factious group of uh, David's men, they begin spreading lies about David. And they start to tell all the different people that they're sick of David's leadership. And, you know, things have gone really, really bad. And the first thing they do is point at their leader and say, it's his fault. We're in this bad shape because um, of David. And so in this crisis, you know, David's leadership's obviously severely tested and I don't know, I, I, I just try to imagine, you know, like put myself in his shoes and try to imagine, you know, what in the world would I do in, in, in that kind of a situation. And, uh, you know, you all probably have had some form of criticism in, in your life as a leader, and if you haven't, you will <laughs> at some point. That's the bad news. But just like David, we get at that spot, you know, and... Uh, our own spirits are, you know, clouded by the effects of that criticism. And I'll tell you what, so many leaders um, have shared uh, with me, and that I've experienced as well, is one of the first things that you start to feel is insecurity. Whenever people criticize you as a leader, and you know, or you know, we've not always received. And um, that, for that matter, maybe it's not an, an out external voice, but maybe we just haven't been that good at receiving God's love, or we haven't really sat and received and soaked in God's love. And so, whenever that criticism comes, you know, we needed that approval to be okay as a leader. Over, and and so, you know, our lack of having received that approval from God and His love for us, sometimes leaves us wanting uh, the approval of, of people. And then when that criticism comes, you find out how much you needed them to, to approve of you. And so David's own courage is pretty, it's really wavering here, I think, because these men are distraught and the women and children are all taken. I mean, you get the picture. It's a, it's a desperate situation. And, you know, I don't, I don't know, but I'm guessing, like David I think that all of us have been in some kind of situation as a leader where our courage is kind of wavering because, uh, you know, maybe we just buried, like, this summer was particularly hard. We buried two of our closest friends, you know, uh, in just a few months as pastors. Or maybe we prayed for people that didn't get healed and instead they died. Um, That can take the wind out of your sails or... Or, you know, somebody that you love, just, uh, <laughs> have you ever seen, this is the, one of the biggest mysteries to me as a pastor, is when you see God come and, and heal somebody's marriage that, you know, they're just about to lose everything, and God comes and he just sovereignly heals their marriage, and within months, things are better, they're kind of out of the fire and they walk away from community or they walk away from church. You just, you're just sitting there going, scratching your head, you know, like, really? You know, you, you know, the kinds of things that um, just sort of, they, they, for me, it, it's, it's hard sometimes to always be the strong leader that I want to be in the face of all of those things. So right now, David's own commitment is kind of wavering. It could be weak because he's being chased by Saul. And, you know, he has God's favor on him when he takes risks, but he faces some pretty big personal failures here and they're being highlighted by people that he has loved, and that he leads, and that he cares about, and, and uh, I don't know, do you ever get tired of, like, crawling back to the father in the shadow of, you know, another personal failure, because in in this case, you know, maybe David didn't do anything wrong, but sometimes I am the problem, (laughs) sometimes I have had a personal failure, and, you know, I'm crawling back to the Father and feeling a bit discredited. And and so suddenly David has to decide, you know, like who needs needs leadership the most here in this moment? Is it his soldiers? Is it the officers? Is it the divisive people? Does he need to go be confrontive? And for David, in Scripture we see that none of those things are what he does first. Uh, In this very critical moment, David realized this foundational truth that he has to lead himself first. He has to lead himself before he can lead anybody else. And 1 Samuel 36 says, Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. So not only are they criticizing him, but they're going to kill him. It's a bad Sabbath. For all, you know, I'm just thinking of You know, yeah, you know what I'm thinking of. For all the people were embittered, each one, because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Like, what did did David have to do? It says, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Like, only after he kind of led himself, he got centered on the Father to meet his needs uh, and he reminded of his calling, I'm sure. He probably said, David, let's have, let's, let's, let me tell you who, I, who you are. You know, one of my favorite prayers has been, because in pastoring or in leadership, there's always people who put their expectations on you and tell you who to be for them, who you need to be for them to be okay, right? And one of my favorite prayers has become, Father, who do you say that I am? Like, if I could just, if I can just hear that, if my heart can receive who you say that I am, I think that's the kind of conversation that went down on that day with David and the Father. You know, and, and it's after he's reminded of who he is, after he's reminded of his calling, after he's reminded that, you know, David, you've seen my favor on you. You've seen my blessing. Let's, this is who you are. You're my pick. You're my chosen one. And then David is able to lead his men to go rescue their families and their belongings. And that's exactly what happened. And we can really only guess that he had to, uh, you know, he probably had to, then there was some way to navigate this mess. He probably, I mean, cleaning up a mess like this would take weeks uh, in most situations. But he probably had to call some to repentance first. And then, you know, bring them back together to be cohesive and to unify them and to get their eyes back on the Lord and, you know, the most important thing. And then he had to lead them to accomplish their mission. But it says only after he first took himself to the Father... And he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. There, was, there wasn't anybody there to mentor him. There wasn't anybody there to give him advice or tell him what to do. Uh, like, so, so many times we have that in our, in our relationships, thank you, Lord. Um, but he led himself when he needed to do that most. And maybe for us, uh, it doesn't look like, maybe for us, it's leading ourselves to the friend that will point us to Jesus or help us get there. Um, but there's still some self-leadership there to go say, you know, I'm in trouble. And, uh, you know, he didn't play the victim card. He didn't, he didn't like everyone is against me. These doggone people that I'm trying to lead are the problem, you know, we don't see that. And how many times has the enemy put that lie in our heads? These doggone people, they won't even give enough money so that we can get a building, right? And there's, it's so easy for us to do that. And, and if he, he didn't think, like, I, I think what I would have thought was, if I just didn't have so many spiritually immature people in my church, right? <laughs> you know, they're so broken. Uh, the point is, you know, David understood the importance of leading himself. And, and when you think about it logically, you know, like, how, how effectively can we, any of us, lead other people? When we've felt the same thing, we felt the same insecurities, we felt the same fear or the same lack of courage that David felt in this horrific mess. And, you know, one of the things that happens is it's hard to stay committed, isn't it? Sometimes it's just hard to stay committed to the mundane task of being a faithful pastor or leader, because it's hard. I asked um, Greg, to, Greg Perkins to come back up. <laughs> Sorry. He's going to call me Rhonda. Um, I asked him to come up because I really think that this, there's something in this story about David that kind of touches all of us. And I asked Greg, or I just asked the APs if, if any of them would share a little story here of how you know they were faced with Lack of courage, lack of commitment. I'm not sure I want to keep doing this. Why should I keep doing this? I could get paid a lot more for doing something else. Um, you know, there's all kind you know, we've all been in that sort of pressure cooker situation, I think, in just being faithful. And I asked Greg to come and share a little story. Or he, he said, I'll share, Rhonda. I'll share a little story <laughs> about how this is, you know, part of my story. And really, what we're talking about, these are all circumstances that are kind of out, of out of David's control. And I think you'll see that in Greg's story.
1: So I was born in 1979.
0: I graduated <laughs> in 1979. <laughs> did you know that from no. my Facebook page? No, or I didn't. Why did you picked that no, year?
1: I didn't. Um, anyways, I, w- I won't start there, though. Uh, I'll start whenever I, I came into the vineyard about a decade ago, over a decade ago now. Uh, I come from uh, southern Indiana, small town, country. Anybody from Indiana? Okay. Um, <laughs> and my wife was from Minnesota, and we had met on spring break in high school. That's exactly what you're thinking, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and we reconnected. She was going to uh, the University of uh, um, UMD, Duluth, University oh. of Minnesota, Duluth. Yeah, there you go. And we reconnected, and, and uh, we were, were engaged, and we were trying to figure out where we are going to be. Yeah, it was really a god story i didn't know any of the geography of minnesota and uh, i called her back and said we got a phone call from uh, victory vineyard church at the time uh to to come in and, and to to interview um we went and interviewed and we just knew even though there was another job that made more sense that was full-time and everything we just knew this is where god was calling us and um and just the story of, of not knowing the geography but that's Burnsville was where she worked, and she lived right next, you know, Apple Valley, and and it just all fell into place. Uh, We actually interviewed with uh, John Geist, led the team back there, and uh, I kind of got baptism by fire. As soon as I came into the vineyard, they whisked us off to San Antonio for a national conference, and uh, growing up American Baptist, uh, I sat there as they were lined up, and people were giving words and pictures, and there was yelling and all kinds of stuff, and I was just kind of standing there like, whoa, you know, this is something. And uh, being a little skeptical, there were people sharing words with me. And I actually had two people share words with me uh, that were pastors at the time. Um, John John was actually one of them. And his says, I have a sense that you have been called to pastor running a church, a multi-generational church, uh, mostly younger people with a contingent of older, wiser uh, young adults. That was his word uh, for me. And then uh, the other pastor said, the Holy Spirit seemed to be saying something like this. You will be heard, but first you must listen. You will um, stand strong, but first you must bow low. You will succeed, but first you must be broken. You will teach, but first you must be taught. Uh, You will be sent, but first you must learn to stay. And, um, you know, looking back on both of those words, those prophetic words to me a decade ago, those words have been fulfilled today uh, in where I'm at. And... uh, um, about four years, they will see, the first year that I was there, the lead pastor resigned because of family issues. Uh, some of you may know about some of that. Uh, then we just went through a whirlwind of stuff, a lot of instability, uh, a lot of brokenness. Um, and, and in four years, I went from being the um, youth pastor custodian to the lead pastor. And, um, and I was obviously very naive. Uh, but the reason why I start with those words is that I look back on that, and I think calling leads to commitment, which leads to consistency. You know, whenever you know where you're called to be there, uh, whenever you're you're going to be committed to be there, and then you're going to be consistent in doing whatever it takes uh, to pastor well, to lead well, and to to love people. And during that time, you know, we went through a lot of adversity. Um, In the first two years, people would ask me, you know, are you having fun? And I would say, no, I'm not having fun. This is terrible. And uh, I don't even like adults, you know, that's kind of my response. And we just we just face wave, uh, uh, waves and waves of of just conflict. Uh, we totally had to you know new vision, new leadership. Everything was new, uh, and we still face. So you know the church is about forty five to fifty years old uh, since it was planted in a storefront. And it's a true resuscitation of what God has done, and I just want to be an encouragement because there's a lot of times in the midst of that where. Um, you go through a lot of stuff. You're told a lot of things. Uh uh your friends turn your back on you, you're you're told you can't you can't do this. And um I, I think uh Psalm eighty six, um, you know, Great is your stead, steadfast love. David said, you know, he says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I'm poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly, save your servant, who trusts in you, you are my God. And I think that alone, um understanding it recalled, committed that we can be consistent, but also he starts out that way, saying, I'm poor, needy. And that's always been my posture. And then at the end it says, because you've, you, Lord, have helped me and you've comforted me. And I can truly say that he's been with us every step of the way, uh, even through all the stuff that we've been through. And, and, and we've been through everything, I can say. It's been incredibly tough, but it's been good, and there's been a lot of fruitfulness. And um, just keep pressing through. Don't quit. Um, you know, wrestle. Wrestle with the, the the questions that you have, um, keep living out the Bible, talk to leaders. There's a lot of great leaders in here, because sometimes it just comes down to asking for help, and I've never been afraid to do that. And uh, just, just on the back end here, um, am, I, am I running out of time yet? Okay, I'm good. Uh, but just on the back end of this, after pressing through, there's a lot of times that... Uh, you know, we could have. I could have quit. I wanted to quit. There's times uh, through some of the stuff. I remember we we did interviews back in Indiana, where I was from. We actually got a job, and I remember when he called to offer the job, and I had to say no because God wouldn't release us. And uh, it was so. It was, I was just. I just cried. I just, you know, uprooting from your family, and friends, everything you've known to go through some of those things. I mean, it's only God that can carry you through that. Uh, but I just want to say to those of you. You never know what could be when you stick with it, uh, you press through that God's got you, that uh, He says He will build the church. Amen?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He will build the church. And we can look back, just last year, I don't know if some of you read some of this in our, the September newsletter, but uh, God has revived us, or we're growing, we, we just had a church plant, which is Sherry. Sherry, you want to raise your hand over here? Uh, we've had an adoption, which is Luke right here. We have a Hispanic ministry with, uh, that's thriving uh, with uh, Rosie and Miguel, uh, we're much more diverse. I think we're only 13 or 86 percent white now, so that's a huge thing for us and the suburbs of Minnesota. Uh, we grew 20 percent, we had 22 baptisms and uh, 154 first-time decisions. And uh, you know, we have the largest single-site food shelf in the state of Minnesota. Uh, because of Brian and Kim Garrity's leadership, and we're on track this year to feed 24,000 families, which equals like 90,000 people. Um, it's amazing, and uh, I don't say that because it's—I'm telling you, this has been very difficult. Uh, we faced a lot of stuff, but we kept pressing through uh, uh, to the end, and God—we can now say God has has helped us, and He's been good, and we're thankful for it. So don't quit.
0: Thanks, Craig. So this is a little bit of a truth or dare, but how many of you sitting here um, can be, and you can be as honest as you feel comfortable, but have absolutely felt challenged to keep going or have felt a couple times like, I don't know, I think, I think that maybe I'm going to quit because it's just hard. Yeah. Just hold them up for a minute because if, you, if you're not in this, it, this will happen to you, young leaders. <laughs> you know, the young leaders are raising their hand, too. It's the H.I. students after one week. Uh, <laughs> this is hard. They didn't tell us everything. Yeah. But you know what I love? I love that at our age, this growth curve can open up in front of us, and God can... Uh, in in the face of lack of courage or commitment or, uh, you know, whatever it is, God can come. He can meet us there, challenge us, hold on, hold on. You know what he tells me over and over and over? He goes, Brenda, this is going to make you into the person you are praying you will become. Yeah. Yeah oh, really, God? This is my answer to prayer. Okay. You know, it's humbling, but this is what you need. This is the, the character-building thing that you need to turn you into the person that can walk humbly with their God and continue to lead. Here's some other brilliant and experienced leaders, and, and um, just a few. I mean, there's so many, and I'm only just going to give you about uh, three quotes here. Um, and mostly, particularly, because these people were really excellent at self leadership. And D. Ward Hawk, he's born in 1929. He's actually the founder and former CEO of Visa Corporation. He was a very brilliant leader and businessman. And in May of 1984, here's the weird thing about his story as a leader he retired to spend almost 10 years in relative isolation. He worked on a 200-acre parcel of land on the Pacific coast, primarily because he said this, I greatly fear and seek to keep at bay the four beasts that inevitably devour their keeper. Ego, envy, avarice, and ambition. I severed all connections with business for a life of isolation and anonymity. Uh, and he was inducted into the Business Hall of Fame in 1991, but he wrote this about leadership. We should invest 50% of our leadership amperage into the task of leading ourselves, and the remaining 50% should be divided into leading down, leading up, and leading laterally. That's a lot, isn't it? 50%. And so I wrote out some, uh, with our goals and objectives for the year, for our staff, we all write some goals and objectives, and... Uh, kind of review them together. And one of the things that we asked this year, which is something that we hadn't asked for in the past, uh, was that we all included some kind of goals for how we were going to personally grow and create rhythms of spiritual formation in our life. And so, you know, you go to pray over these goals, you start thinking about, you know, like, Okay, how many hours a week do I put in my goals that I want to see show up in my calendar for, uh, you know, just sitting quietly in God's presence? How many days a year or a month should I fast? How many times should I go away for a three-day personal retreat? I'll tell you something, 50% of my time, I'm out of here, you know? No, I can't do 50% yet. I'm somewhere in the, you know, I don't know, I'm pretty, I'm just barely starting but it's interesting to me, because we immediately feel kind of guilty at you know, taking any time to do that. And yet I think it's a fair thing that as leaders, maybe I would encourage you to give your staff permission to take care of themselves. I'm, I'm learning as I talk to young leaders that this is a cry of their heart. It's a different thing than some of us older baby boomers Um, and I I think I'm in the other, younger, I want to put myself, I don't know where I'm, I'm confused about which generation I'm in, but, um, you know, there was a real driven work ethic, which was a good thing, but there's younger leaders who are saying, I want my family to be taken care of, I want to spend time with my family, and I think we have to be careful, I think we need to honor that, and teach them how to do well with their soul, and you know, if they encourage we did a thing where we encouraged all of our we had about nineteen lay leaders in our youth and student ministries and over the summer um they all had to go take a personal retreat for at least a couple days and they met with a staff person who gave them some direction and here's what you can anticipate and here's some resources and here's four places that you can go and we helped them schedule it. But it was it was something that we wanted them to experience and so we just sort of made it part of their job, you know, and said as a leader here, we want you to have this experience so that you can, so God can meet you there and you can talk to him about who you are and what he says about you. And so I think there's creative ways that as we lead people around us that we can help them create a rhythm for spiritual formation. And we've got to start with ourself. Like I had to start, you know, with myself and self-leadership there. John Wimber, years ago, when he was asked about the book, Taking Our City for God, said, I'm just trying to take myself for God. <laughs> and I think that he knew that he had to lead himself well first. And that's probably kind of maybe where that was coming from. Daniel Goleman is the author of the best-selling book, Emotional Intelligence. He spent several years analyzing why some leaders develop to their fullest potential, uh, and why most leaders hit a plateau and just stop growing in leadership and in gifting and uh, that ends up being really far from their full potential and his conclusion was that the difference is self-leadership. I find that very interesting. Goldman says exceptional leaders distinguish themselves because of superior self-leadership. He found some characterizations that really maximize leadership potential and there's just three things, real quickly, um, I wanted to give them to you. Tenaciously staying in leadership despite overwhelming opposition or discouragement. I don't, I don't know how you do that <laughs> sometimes, that tenaciously staying without you know, each other, without helping each other. Um, paying attention to what's happening in, in, when it comes to opposition and discouragement. Keeping your ego at bay, knowing that, you know, he's God and you're not, and not letting pride slip into your day-to-day life or your leadership. Um, Staying focused on the mission instead of being distracted by someone else's agenda. I think there's about, you know, 250 people that would have, you know, come in and hijacked our mission and our agenda if we would have let them over the last 15 years in our church. And you can't play to that. You can't play that game. You have to not have a failure of nerve. You have to, as a leader, say, wait a minute, this is where the bus is going. You all heard the bus analogy? It's so brilliant. If you haven't ever ever said it and casting vision to your church, I mean, sometimes I'm talking to leaders and they have, you know, a pastor or leader has someone in their church that's undermining their leadership or trying to, I said, man, it's like they're getting on your bus and trying to take your steering wheel and turn you around and make you go to the mall when you're going to, you know, a different direction. You got you to gotta stand up and say, here's where this bus is going. And you can vote with your feet. You can get on and have a great seat in the bus and we'll go where we're going to our destination, but here's where we're going. But you don't let people take you off of you don't have you don't let them have their agenda god gets to aside where your church goes and he picked you to lead it there when you begin to think about self-leadership and you begin to look at the life of jesus i know you know this but it becomes very clear through the gospels that he had this particular pattern of ministry he would do ministry very intensely hundreds of people and then it was always followed by that time set aside where he would escape for reflection, for prayer, for fasting, for solitude. And that repeated itself through his whole ministry. Jesus was practicing the art of self-leadership. And pretty clearly. The bottom line is, I think it's incredibly important. And I want you to think about the fact that nobody else can do this kind of work for you. How many times, like, you, how many times does someone come up to you and and tell you how to lead yourself? Or, or you know, say, hey, um, you know, I, you just don't really, there's a certain point where you don't have people ask you the hard questions. Like, some of the questions that you brought up that you heard the Lord ask you in that reflective time, like, has anyone else come up and said those things to you before? Not generally. Sometimes that we don't, that's not happening in our life. And so you know, the truth is we have to do that work. We have to submit to those hard questions with, with the Father. And, and it's always going to be a lot easier to just go about the business of leading other people than to do the hard work of leading ourselves. Stephen, I'm going to ask you to come and lead us again in some more spiritual direction. And then Brian and Greg are going to follow with um, just leading some ministry time for us tonight. And we'll do some large group ministry time and give some specific words as the Lord leads us well.
2: So as a uh, kind of a short introduction uh, to our time tonight um, and as um, uh, f- kind of follow-on from our last time, uh, I'm going to ask Bonnie if you could come and share with us um, about your experience uh, this afternoon with our examine. That's okay. That's
0: welcome. I have dealt with weight issues almost all of my life, and um, sometimes successful or not, and I usually hit a brick wall, and I've asked God many times what that wall is, and there's been cracks in that wall, but it's never come down, and um, during our quiet time today, I asked him again, and he gave me two words, and I just knew instantly they were the key to what's been going on in my life, and I just thank him for that.
2: God's so cool. Seriously. Isn't that the, like, the weirdest thing? So like, I'm going to tell a little story on myself before I even start. Um, so I do like anti-trafficking ministry in Baltimore on the streets, and, and sometimes, like, uh, especially in like, the dangerous parts, you just become the weird Christian. Right. That's like your safest thing to do. Right. Because you're like you're like, you know, you know, some pimp will come up and like, you know, what are you what are you doing out here because you're not buying sex or anything like that. I'm like, you know, here's the thing. I heard this voice. Right. That said, go out and love these people. Right. So like God is just so. And then like then they leave me alone. They think I'm crazy. Right. Um, But like God is just so good like that. Right. But it's so Weird to the rest of the world that we might hear something, hear a word from God, and then hear a word that would touch something that we've struggled with for so long. Uh, that just touches my heart. All right. So uh, a quick reminder of kind of what we're doing, because um, uh, I know, Peter, you guys were late. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so um, we're going to do um, uh, an examine. Um, kind of uh, bouncing out of what Brenda just shared. We're going to use a verse as uh, a launching point. Uh, I'll read the verse, and then I'll have a couple comments about it. Then we'll read it again. We'll have a couple minutes of silence to just kind of sit with that and soak into that uh, and get with the Lord. And then we'll kind of, I'll read through the reflective questions again, and we'll have hopefully about uh, Fifteen, 20 minutes of just silence, reflection, being with the Lord um, um, and just meeting him because he's so gracious. All right. So everybody's good with their with their posture today, right? The posture is what's, the, what's our posture? receiving so it's not it's not a leaning forward thing it's a leaning back thing we're receiving we're we're taking a step we're retreating not advancing so we're taking a step back to get perspective right good you guys are great good students you guys should be in in, in HLI <clears throat> all right so um so our reading for those who want to like go to the passage with your bible um we're going to be reading both from Matthew 23 and from Luke 11 which is really the same passage in both but and I just feel like I want to I want to read both I feel like the Lord has something for us here. So <clears throat> Matthew 23 verses 1 through 7. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and his disciples saying the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore All that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. They have broadened their phylacteries and lengthened the tassels of their garments. They... Love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by men. All right, and I want to read the um, the resonant passage in Luke 11, uh, and this will be... Verses 39 through 44. So Luke 11, 39 through 44. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones. Did you not, did not he who made the outside of the, make the inside as well? But give that which is within as charity, and then all Things will be clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe and mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are things that you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs. And the people who walk over them, unaware of it. <clears throat> so my sort of my comment on this passage um, would be: uh, I think it's interesting that um, sometimes we use words and we we kind of like we have a vague notion of what they're about, but we don't particularly um, we don't have a, like a specific idea, right? And I've and I've seen this a lot with. Um, of course, with the word love, right? The the word love, just in the English language, and I'm sure in Spanish, can mean a variety of things to a variety of different people, right? When you say love. Um, And here's the interesting thing. Like, I'll I'll get in, you know, so I'm a word nerd, right? Because, you know, I studied Hebrew and a little bit of Greek. And the Greek here, the word for love, the Pharisees love the best seats, right? Is the word agapeo, right? And so, like, usually, like, that word it's only applied to humans in this section, right? In every other section, it's applied to God. So I think we can learn from the Pharisees, through a negative example, of what agape really means, of what love is really about, right? So what does it say? It says that they love the seats, the best seats in the synagogue, right? And so like their love, agapeo, agape love, really means that you are willing to live your life differently to get what you love they live their life in order to get acclamation from 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 the crowds they live their life so they get invited to be have the first seats in the house right and so agapeo agape is loving something so much that you change the way you love right or, or that you change the way you actually live right so i think that's what that's what the incarnation is about, right? That's what Jesus did. That's what God did. God did something different because he loved us so much. He loved us so much. And I, I I often I think that we we miss that point because we we have vague notions of love or or actually not just vague ones, we have a multiplicity of of what we think love is. Um and I think you know, uh, for me, and, I, you know, again, I'm like a word nerd, um, you know, going to the original uh, Greek or the Hebrew is, has just been so helpful for me. Um, so, it, so if you don't get the message here, God loves you so much, he changes the way he lives to pursue you, right, to pursue us, All right, let me read it one more time, and I'll stick with Matthew. Uh, Matthew 23, 1 through 7. But Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move with them, move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels on their garments. They love the best places of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by men.